How's it going, everybody? Trust you're having a great day. Hope you like the intro song. I was challenged uh, last time by my uh, young men, my friends, uh, young men I walk uh, with in discipleship to up my game and my music. And uh, I like this song. I hope this pleases them. Harold, welcome to Theology in the Dirt. Great to be here. Thank you. This is Harold Campbell. He's with us today. Justin uh, Justin is busy. He's working hard as an accountant during this season, and Justin will be back with us in a, in a week or so. And in the meantime, we have a, a special guest, Harold Campbell, and we'll introduce him in just a second. But uh, we're very glad that you guys listen to Theology in the Dirt. It's a pleasure to have you as part of the audience and part of the Theology in the Dirt family. We are at Restoration Rome, so Theology in the Dirt is brought to you by Global Impact Restoration Rome. So we record here in our offices at Global Impact Restoration Rome, where we uh, facilitate foster care and adoption, uh, partnering with other agencies to uh, alleviate foster care and adoption challenge in, in the state of Georgia. And so uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be part of this work, but also to be here and to work out of this amazing office where incredible things happen on a daily basis in the lives of uh of foster parents, biological parents, and, and the children of our city and our state. And so if you'd like to find out a little more about Restoration Rome, you can go to restorationrome.org, and you see all kinds of good information there, and also any way you'd like to partner by giving or volunteering, that is available for you there as well. And so Theology in the Dirt exists to help us wrestle with our theology and making practice of it uh, in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. Uh, And so that's what we want to do is take what we believe in the Bible, uh, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, and practice it in the public square. And so that's what we want to wrestle with in our conversations. And we have all kinds of amazing people uh, in our city, and we want to have more of them on. And one of them is Harold Campbell. Harold Campbell is a native of Northwest Georgia, and uh, he's a journalist by trade, and he has a fantastic story that he has told for us in a, a book he has written, recently published, called Crazy People Like Us. So, Harold, welcome to Theology in the Dirt today. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you, my friend. Harold's a member of our church also, uh, and uh, just a sharp gentleman, and uh, he's got some incredible international experience, so we're going to unpack a little bit of that this morning and tell a little bit about the book and how you can get the book and read it and, uh, and join in that narrative, that story. So before we do, though, we want to have our sports hot take. Harold, being a journalist, mm-hmm. right, you, you're experienced in dealing um, with publication, and you're a sports guy. You like sports. So, Harold, you told me you have a sports hot take. Yeah, I've got, got one. Uh, go back to October. The Braves win the World Series. Shock everybody but the Braves themselves and – a few Braves fans who had given up. Then go fast forward to January, the Dogs win the NCAA football championship. Go Dogs. Now, tomorrow, my alma mater, Kansas, is going to be in the Final Four. Yes. Yes. That's all it would take to make a sports trifecta. <laughs> if Monday morning I can call you up, hey, Mitch, guess what? But I know the basketball gods are working because <laughs> it yeah. assuming duke wins tomorrow it would be coach k's final game and i just know the hollywood disney ending mm. and i'm like ah, i don't want mm. that to happen so yeah but you know um it would be awesome to see that hollywood disney ending be absolutely crushed and spoiled oh, also. i would 
I agree with that. Amen, brother. I'm not the biggest Duke fan for whatever. I don't. Yeah. I like Coach K. Fine. Probably my my disdain for Duke is that they just seem to win all the time. Yeah, they find a way to win. Yeah, and 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 um, yeah, I'm I'm not the biggest Duke guy. You know? Same here. And so I yeah, go Kansas. Exactly. Rock chalk Jayhawk. <laughs> That's awesome. So Harold, you are a Kansas graduate. Mm-hmm. What did your uh, What was your degree in it at Kansas? Journalism. Journalism degree. News editorial sequence. Okay. So now you're from Northwest Georgia, though, right? Mm-hmm, right. So so where did you grow up, and how did you find your way from where you grew up to Kansas? And that's a Long story, but I'll make the Reader's Digest version. But uh, I was born here in Rome at Floyd Hospital when it was just Floyd Hospital. Looks nothing like it does now. Right? Wasn't it McCall? Was it was it Floyd Hospital or was it McCall? Like because there's a no, it was Floyd Hospital. It's on my birth certificate. Okay, there's something McCall. uh, Yeah, there was another hospital. Somebody who's been here for longer than yeah. I have could tell you all about that but yeah. it was it's here on South Broad because I yeah, know there's somewhere. some McCall Hospital and then there's Floyd and McCall. right okay, gotcha mm-hmm. all right so um, basically I was a young kid here I I'll age myself here I remember probably one of the earliest memories I have is when Kennedy was assassinated wow we were living in like a duplex or something across North Broad Street from Jennings Funeral Home then. It's now like the North Broad Youth Center or something like that. Right. And uh, then we moved to Dalton where I started school. And my father started working at Yellow Freight Company in Chattanooga. And he would drive every day from Dalton to Chattanooga, which in the late 60s you could get away with that because there wasn't that much traffic. But right. uh after doing that for a while, we moved to Fort Oglethorpe, um, right on the edge of Chickamauga Battlefield. When I was in the fifth grade, okay, I was in fifth grade through high school uh, in Fort Oglethorpe. Uh, my mother's mother lived here in Rome. I had just assumed I was going to go on to UGA, um, so I, I went to what's now Georgia Highlands. Mm-hmm. Then was Floyd Junior College. Right. I went there for two years. The first of November of my second year, my father's company says, you have to be in Kansas City at our headquarters by Thanksgiving if you want your job. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he loaded up his little VW Beetle and moved out to Kansas City. My mother and brother and sister moved out over Christmas break. I stayed with my grandmother uh, till graduation, I uh, I could have stayed here in Georgia and went to UGA, and also the year after I graduated would have been Herschel Walker and oh, national man. championship. So I missed that by one year, missed but uh, but I thought, well, I decided to go to the University of Kansas uh, for one thing. I'd kind of like to go to a different part of the country, you know, live there, experience it, and also it still is one of the top journalism schools in the country. So. That's how I ended up out there. Um, Fantastic. So you got a degree in journalism. Yeah, then I've um, I worked for about 25 years as a daily newspaper reporter and editor. Um, wow. What papers, uh, now that's out in out in that part of the most, world. Most of them were, yeah. Uh, okay. My first job was actually in Odessa, Texas. Wow. Uh, which is out there. Um, I lasted there about a year until I got back to Kansas, and I... I mainly worked at papers and newspaper in 
Kansas and Nebraska, a couple of Nebraska places. Right. Well, well, we've got so we've got your Northwest Georgia, the Fort O area, Fort Oglethorpe area, and then uh, you move to Kansas. Mm-hmm. But you're here now in yeah. Rome, Georgia, mm-hmm. and so we've got a gap, all right? And so you have a, an absolutely fantastic story. I've spent some time with you over the past couple of years on Wednesdays. Uh, you, myself, and a couple other gentlemen spent time together. Uh, you said you wanted to learn the DNA of our church. We say KDSC, and so we've been gathering through covid um, on the outskirts of COVID and through COVID, wherever we happen to be mm-hmm. in COVID. Um, and, and we've gotten to know each other over that time. And in that time, you also um, began to really write down your story mm-hmm. uh, and you shared it with, with folks and, and, uh, and were encouraged to finish writing that into a book. And mm-hmm. you've done that. Mm-hmm. And so the title of your book is crazy people like mm-hmm. us. Yeah. So uh, I want, to give you time to tell that story. I, I've read your book. It's, it's a fantastic story. It's just a neat story, in my opinion, of God's grace to you um, through uh, hard things. Um, and and uh, and you're seeking to be obedient to the Lord. And uh, But just life, you normal life that's been hard, but in God's grace you have seen him do amazing things in your life. And so I would love for you to tell some of your story. So the first question I want to ask you, then just talk. Mm-hmm. And then I'll probably ask a few questions along the way. Sure. Is the title, Crazy People Like Us. How did you arrive at that title? And, and what does that mean? Okay. Um, my wife, Nadia, she was Russian. And uh, we met online, not on a dating website, but on a Christian pen pal website. And... Uh, I'll say it started, the story actually started before I ever met her when uh, I was getting, getting burned out on journalism because the world of journalism today is not what I was trained for. Um, all the electronics and there are things that happened that I just couldn't go along with. Like when I first started, every article I or any other reporter wrote went through at least two sets of eyes the managing editor, and then the desk editor. Um, so it was pretty well, you know, I learned a lot just from that because the managing editor, if, if he read your story and he had any holes in it, like any questions or anything, he'd call you and you're like, Harold, get in here. <laughs> and he would ask, well, what, what do you mean by that? Why do you say that? Why don't you call him back and get some more clarification? And I got tired of that, you know, so right. I became a better reporter because I didn't want to get called into his office right. every day. Yeah. And then the other desk guy would see it after that. And so everything was, there was nothing that got in the paper. It was human, human error does happen, but everything was seen by somebody. Well, then later I became managing editor of the paper, of a paper, and the publisher would pressure me to put stuff on the website, pretty much sight unseen. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that because there was one time in particular when um, he people noticed a lot of gas trucks going through town, like natural gas, the natural gas company, and and the publisher wanted to put something in the paper right on the website right then that there's all these gas trucks going in town, da da da. Right. Well, I didn't know. We had no idea what it was. Turned out it was just a gas. It was a gas leak, but we didn't know at that time. So 
just conflicts like that, that I'm like, ah. and plus by the time I left, I was doing the job that three or four people would have done before because of downsizing. And I felt like I really wasn't doing a good job because I just didn't have time to do it. And so one of the things that even back in high school, I liked doing this is meeting people from other countries and helping them with their English. And so I thought, well, maybe I could go back to school and get ESL certification. But then I thought, well, that's going to take two or three years and maybe twenty or $30,000. I'm like, I don't want to go into debt that much at this time in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, then when I met Nadia online, she was very fluent in English. She was almost like native speaker level. And... She was an English teacher. She'd been an English teacher like 10 or 12 years by the time I met her. And I told her about that. And she goes, Harold, you don't have to do that. She said that you can get an online certification for teaching English as a foreign language. And with your bachelor's degree in journalism, that's almost like an English degree. And she said there's a big need for certified native speaker teachers in Russia, especially St. Petersburg, where she was living at that time. And I thought, well, I guess I'd always had this thought that uh, I would probably live in another country at some point, maybe not permanently, but at least at some point. And but I had no idea it was it was going to be Russia. <laughs> but uh, I thought the other thing I thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to turn this down. Right. And then ten or twenty years later, I say, you know, I could have done that then. So I'm like, okay. This is it. Um, our relationship by that time had been, we knew we were going to get married. It right. was just a matter of where and when. Mm. And so, um, now going ahead from that is, we'll get into this later, but we uh, were married in Russia, St. Petersburg. We were there for about a year, and then we ended up going to India to teach English at a couple of Christian orphanages there. And that came about because... Uh, Nadia originally, well, when I met her, she was literally living in Siberia. Mm. If you would have taken a globe and got a black marker and started in Kansas where I was living at the time and drew, drew a line north to the North Pole yeah. and then came back on the other side, you'd almost end up exactly where she oh, was wow. living. Yeah. It's like 11 time zone difference. Wow, yeah. And so they they were this assistant pastor of this one church, the book gives the whole sordid details, but uh, we don't want to, we don't want people to miss, want to read the book. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to give any spoilers right now. That's right. No spoilers. uh, But she, uh, one of the assistant pastor of that church was kind of the Russian director of this orphanage ministry in India. And they wanted her, Nadia, to teach English. And so after I got married, they, oh, you can tag along too. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we were in India. And then we were going to we come back to Russia. And we're at a point where you know, it was uncertain. Things were, everything was uncertain about when we, right. what was going to happen when we get back to Russia. And one of the problems that English teachers, well, not a problem, but a obstacle English teachers there would have is that summer is a slow time. And so it was, this was already April and we're like, well, you know, I said something like, you know, when we get back, we're going to have to rush and find students for the summer and all this other thing. And then Nadia just 
smiled and said, well, God takes care of crazy people like us. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, she said, he, she used that phrase several yeah. more times. It was the first time I remembered her saying it. So mm. that's how the name of the book came about. That's fantastic. What's, what a great story. And, and you guys, uh, meeting the way you met, um, describe how that relationship um, evolved mm-hmm. and why it was maybe uh, unique for you. Because, you know, in reading the book, Nadia is just comes across, and, and knowing some of your backstory, uh, she comes across as just a, a very gentle, kind, uh, and not just comes across. Mm-hmm. She is a very gentle, kind. Mm-hmm. Well, lady, she was so. gentle, but she could be tough too. I mean, she was the yeah, she was the extrovert. I'm the introvert, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. She actually toughened me up. Wow. Um, yeah, because if you're weak in Russia, you're going to get run over. Wow. Um, it's interesting because because she she seems like um she seems like uh just this listening to your story uh a person that's the complete opposite of your previous experience there was an attraction there for for that gentleness and and i guess what i think by gentleness is someone that treated you kindly oh yeah definitely and and and, uh and loved you and and i think the evolution talk about the evolution of that relationship how you met her what is it that attracted you to her yeah. uh, as a as a person and because i think that's incredible part of your story and and you don't have to tell any of the backstory that led to that if you don't want to um but but she comes across as someone god made for you i think so too yeah. and i think i i was probably someone she god made for her too mm-hmm. uh, like i said we met online which not on a dating and i got to the point where i i've been married before and by this time, a number of years, like when I met Nadia, probably about 15 years after my divorce, after some fits and starts, I just kind of like, I'm probably going to get married again. Famous mm-hmm. last words. And right. uh, so I I found that date, uh, not a date, a Christian pen pal website doesn't exist anymore, um, but you could click a map of the countries and you'd have like a people from that country who was looking for pen pals. Well, at first I clicked Nepal and I found a Nepalese Christian journalist living in Kathmandu and I actually met him first and we became pen pals. We're still pen pals. He and his wife now live in New York city and they're involved in a ministry to Nepali immigrants in New York. Mm. I'd love to meet him someday. I still yeah. haven't. That's wild. And then after that, I saw Russia, and I'm like, well, because I'm older. You know, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up in the Cold War era, and back when I was growing up, it would have been impossible for an Amer- average American to meet an average Russian. Mm. So I thought it'd be nice to have a Russian Christian pen pal. So I clicked on Ed, and... Yeah, some of the women were kind of dressed a little, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but then I clicked, I clicked on Nadia, right? And she was dressed modestly, but she just had this face, you know, that looked friendly. Yeah, and she even had a nice little verse that with her thing, and so I thought, why not? So I just sent her a short email, said, "Hi, I'm Harold," and said three or four sentences about myself and. 
Who knows? Well, I felt like a teenager, you know. I was like, man. And I remember going to bed that night. I'm like, uh, I can't sleep. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I got up like at midnight or 1230 and logged on. And she answered and just introduced herself a few sentences and said she'd been divorced. She has a daughter. I have a daughter and a son um, with my first wife. And so we started emailing and just right away, she was one of the most mature Christians I've ever met. Mm. She was, I'd prayed for, I another get another woman. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be a challenge to me and mm. she was. Mm. And so when you say challenge, you mean a, to your, uh, your daily life with Jesus, yeah, following every, the Lord. everything, just yeah. being an example. And, yeah. and she was a huge encouragement as far mm. as being a cheerleader, kind of the yeah. herald, you're, you can do this. You're, you know, yeah. uh, so that really helped and it didn't take us long to find yeah. out that, yeah, that's okay. awesome. That's an example of the complete opposite of your previous experience. She was for you mm-hmm. and, right. and, and it's absolutely beautiful story. So you guys get to know each other, uh, riding and you make a trip over to visit. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah. talk about that trip. I was fascinated by how well that went and then how well it didn't go mm-hmm. and how it was repaired. And, yeah. and, and I, I've asked you, privately like how did that go down tell a little bit about the first mm-hmm. time you met and the trip you made and mm-hmm. uh and and how that came about fascinated by that yeah we uh pretty soon i'd say within a month or so after we first met we thought we need to meet each other in person mm-hmm. this was in september when we first met and so by october or so we decided we really do need to meet in person to see if this is for real or not, or right. just just our imaginations or something. And so, at first, Nadia wanted me to travel visit her and where she was living in Russia, and which Siberia, <laughs> a city Siberia. called Nizhnyavartovsk, which is a big oil okay. producing area. If you anybody who's read who's read Tom Clancy his book Red Storm Rising about start of start of World War 3 starts in Nizhnyavartovsk when some terrorists blow up an oil refinery okay but i've never been there but uh it's i don't know about now it's totally different but right. uh to get a to get a visa a russian visa if you're going to stay with a family you have to get a what's called a home homestay visa, right? And the person you stay with has to fill out all this paperwork, right? And basically, they're responsible for you, right? Even if if I did something really bad, she'd get in trouble, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so she is she's completely responsible for well, everything that, for anybody yeah. like that. And it's a it's okay. a pain it's a pain in the rear for the Russians <laughs> to do that. I got you. But she was willing to do it, and she was she had to actually. She would have had to actually drive, like, get on a bus and go, like, to the closest place to do that from her. It would be, like, a thousand miles away. Wow. But there was something about to get a Russian visa. You don't know until almost the time you're to leave whether you get it or not. And oh, I'm wow. Like, I can't, I can't afford to buy a refundable ticket. Right. And at the same time, I can't, I don't want to wait until the last minute and they can't, they don't, they deny it. I'm like, then I'm out of luck. So, uh, turned out that, uh, she has a friend who lives, I'm 
we still call it Kiev. Ukrainians don't like that because that's the Russian pronunciation. They 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 call it Kiev. Kiev. So it's so, Kiev. So by us saying Kiev, we're using the Russian. The Russian, pronunciation. yeah. Oh, they, okay. And in this current time, you don't want to do that. Okay. So right. anyway, she has a friend in Kiev, and that worked out fine because as an American, I don't need a visa, a tourist visa, just to visit. At that time, Russians didn't need a tourist visa either. Uh, So we stayed there. And yeah, to get into the story a little bit, the first couple of days went great. Right. And we're kind of like, yeah, this is fine. And uh, Nadia met me at the airport when I arrived and everything. And then... This guy who was the assistant pastor had been at that church who was the director of the orphanage thing. And this other pastor in this other city in uh, Ukraine, at the time, Dnipro Petrovsk, now it's just Dnipro, the Ukrainian name. And they were going to take me and Nadia to their, to his home, the pastor's home, and spend two or three days there. I'm like, great. And so... It was strange. It was my first real introduction to Eastern European Slavic culture. Okay, <laughs> and wow. so on the way on the in the van on the way down to drive, this pastor started at peppering me with all these kind of questions. Like I remember, he asked, "Well, what do you do to prove your worth in the kingdom?" and mm. uh, something like that. And I told him, "Well, I, I'm a journalist. I." Before I was involved in this, I was basically, well, I was the Southern Baptist Communications and Prayer Coordinator for the ministry in Montreal, Quebec, based in Montreal, and I'd traveled to Montreal many, many times. I thought God was going to lead me to Montreal because I could live there very easily. Right. And I think God knew that and said, Harold, I don't want you to move to easy. Mm. Mm. And so he just never, no doors ever opened. And uh, so then when I ran across Nadia, then my Canadian ministry kind of faded in the background. Sure. And so he didn't seem to really like that answer Mm. or wasn't impressed very much. And do you think it was a, do you think he was testing your worth for her or was there a theological? No, I think it was theological. Theological thing. Did he see just. Was it an American? Was was it a nationalistic theological perspective? This American's not worthy, or is there truly this sense of a, you know, how real of a Christian are you? I thought that. Okay, I didn't come across anything about necessarily American or gotcha. anything like that. Just because, well, listen, <laughs> it gets better. Yeah. Uh, so then we got there, and Nadia kind of changed. Right. It's like. First few days, it was great. Then it was kind of like she had this distance kind of thing. And uh, well, bef- way before I even got to Ukraine, the the guy who was the assistant pastor asked if I could speak at their church on that Sunday evening. I said sure, and so Nadia was going to interpret for me. And I remember one time, I sat in it right next to her and asked her something about the online. TEFL course I was taking, and she kind of just scooted away from me, um, kind of ignored me, kind of thing. And then this pastor, what happened next? Um, yeah, he uh, he asked me. He, I, we were talking about something, and I 
I mentioned something that my the pastor of my church back in Kansas was doing, and he just criticized that. I can't right. remember all the details, and I'm like, what? Yeah, what's happening here? Yeah, right. and then um, I think this happened before that, but with the with this pastor, with that the the Ukrainian guy, right? We were talking about Bible translations or something, and. I showed him my Bible, which I was using an NIV Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which I loved. Yeah, and I showed him that oh, you can these different topics. He made 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 this numbering system. You can look up verses very quickly, and he gave me this kind of a sarcastic, mm. condescending kind of look. What's and said something like, "Well, it's amazing what people can do to take away the power of the Holy Spirit." Oh wow, and. I literally almost threw it at him. <laughs> I said, well, first of all, you insult me, which I don't care. Sure. Second of all, you insult my pastor, who I consider a very good friend. Right. Now you insult my Bible. Right. <laughs> so what right. else can you do? <laughs> and then we went to the church to for me to speak at, and Naughty was kind of standing away from me, and and it was, oh, it was hard. Yeah, I was hard. I, I couldn't even say a word. I, I think I whatever I I can't remember a word I said. But it took right. like ten minutes, right? Because I didn't want to be there. Sure, you've made all you've made this trip. You've come here, and this seems to not be going, yeah, in your favor. Yeah, and I I didn't really I didn't know what I was confused and sure. everything right then and then okay that we finally went yeah. back to Kiev and I'd almost I told her later that. You came within this close of me just going back to the airport and getting on a plane sure. and counting this up to experience. Yeah. So we did get back to Kiev, and we talked, of course. Yeah. And I told, I just laid out, hey, you know, you're. I feel like you're just treating me like I'm like your internet friend. Right. Instead of almost fiance. And, right. Because a lot had happened. You guys had making this decision to go visit her was a des- result of a, a growing relationship yeah. that that this was more than just a pen pal. This was growing into something that definitely yeah, yeah. looking so, toward marriage. So um, she told me that she felt like she was she'd been under spiritual attack, kind mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. and uh, she really didn't have a lot to explain. And I I got to the point. Well, I really do love her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I said, you know, I told myself, chances are I'm going to be doing something stupid at some point. And as a, as a male, I know I'm going to do something <laughs> dumb right? Uh, sooner or later. And I'm like, you know, she, and well, it's weird because I say in the book, it even looked like her face had changed mm. at this point. It looked right. just harder or something. And, and so, well, everybody deserves a second chance sure i'm like okay um i don't want to throw away what we've had right over what might just be something minor so we did talk it out especially after i came back to the u.s and i think our first we talked on skype almost every day (laughs) pretty much every day yeah and so we had a pretty good conversation after I got back, and I was pretty tough with her. I just said, okay, this better not happen again. Sure, yeah. And she was blah, 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 whatever. I can't remember what she said. I just know that I wanted to, 
lay down some boundaries that, you know, this happens again, you need to talk to me first and just say, sure. tell me what you're going through. Right. The other thing that happened at that um, time when I spoke at the church was this pastor showed a video of some kind of Christian training thing to the church. And right. It looked kind of like a Christian survivalist camp, and wow. and they were doing like rope climbing and rappelling and you know killing your own chicken and cooking it kind of thing. <laughs> right, I'm like well, I'm this is more like the Army Rangers or Navy SEALs than anything else. But uh, and one of the slides publicly said, well so-and-so this woman had a harder time than others with the obstacle course and i'm like that's just we wouldn't do that right but i another thing i thought was well if god is moving me to this culture i'm gonna have to get used to it right and i'm gonna have to deal with it right Uh, fortunately that was a vast exception most russians i met were very friendly sure Um, yeah, their friendliness is a little bit different than ours in the South. People just slap each other on the back the first time you meet them. Within five minutes, you're supposedly best friends. In Russia, and most other countries I've been to, it's a little bit more reserved. Sure, that you don't really just become friends right away. But once you become friends with a Russian, you're their friend yeah. no matter what. I've got a couple of former, no, two or three former students. Uh, I still hear from, yeah. uh, especially this one guy who uh, came, he was an IT guy, right? and he was looking for a native speaker to help him prepare for a job interview with a Canadian company, with their office in St. Petersburg there, and so for, every day for about a month, I met with him, and we went through like normal questions they ask on any job interview, right. he, I would ask the question, he'd do the answer, I'd critique the answer, Right. he got the job, so he called me Master Yoda. Master Yoda. <laughs> he still calls me Master Yoda. <laughs> He's Padawan. Uh, yeah. You are you are Master Yoda. And his daughter, um, he had a teenage daughter, and she was very, very, very fluent in English. Mm-hmm. And he wanted her to take lessons from me because he said that St- Nastya, his daughter, knew more English than her teacher, which was true. Right. And, so, yeah, they, they uh, later went to Nadia's funeral, which was very meaningful to me. Sure, so, absolutely. Uh, now, now there's uh, two things we want to cover, then I want to get some political advice from you because we're going to run out of time here very quickly. Unfortunately, time flies yeah. when we're getting to tell good stories and, and spend good time together. You guys, uh, you guys get married. Mm-hmm. You move to Russia, but you guys don't stay in Russia. You guys, you go, you go to another country and do some work. Talk quickly yeah. uh, about where you guys go and what you did in teaching English. Yeah, we went to uh, India. We, I'd been there for not quite a year. We went to India. We were there for five months. We taught at a couple of Christian orphanages there. Uh, what not, part of India were you in? For the first three months, we were in a little, uh, not a little, but a city called Bareilly, which I'd never heard of right. until we found out we were going there. <laughs> it's in northeast India. It's about 150 miles south and east of New Delhi. It's close to the Nepal border, but that doesn't mean there were mountains anywhere close. Right. Uh, it's a very crowded, very Indian type of city. Right. I, I tell in the book about seeing this, these ditches along the roads and mosquitoes and flies and the water looked really yucky. And mm-hmm. I thought, 
Oh, that must be what an open sewer looks like. Yes. And uh, in the last two months, we were in Bangalore, now Bengaluru, in -hmm. South India. Right. Um, We basically just taught English to the kids. Uh, Nadia was kind of the lead teacher with that. I just kind of helped. Were these Christian orphanages? Right. They were Christian in name. Yes. (laughs) uh, What's interesting in in working in India, uh, fascinating is sometimes, um, and I praise God for Christians who have a vision for caring for kids. because uh, a friend of mine uh, there in India, a native uh, from India, um, their parents will, if they're poor, will drop their children off at an orphanage to give them a chance in yeah. life. And and if they're coming from a different faith background and they drop them at a Christian orphanage, well, those kids are going to get to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank God for people who are willing to go serve teaching English, but work in those orphanages because those those young folks get a chance to be exposed to the good news of the kingdom and we did care have, for. We did have that happen with uh, four kids who were dropped off from another ministry, and mm. they definitely were not from a Christian background, and I detail that in the book. We don't yeah. have time to go through it here. Yeah. But, uh, People have to go get the book. That's why we're, we're not yeah. telling all the story because <laughs> we want them to go read the story. But yeah, I what the... One of the main things as far as culture for me was that I was kind of going through culture shock going to Russia. Yeah. But then I got to India. (laughs) I thought, well, compared to India, Russia is not that different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. India is a great place. Um, You know, I want to go down that road because we'll be there in in July. Um, And so up in the Himalayas. and uh, with our, with my friend, what's fascinating though is his journey of faith happened because he was taken to a Christian orphanage where he got exposed to the gospel, and he is an apostolic yeah. leader um, because of that. So praise God for you, for your ministry there. So um, you guys go back to Russia, um, and um, you you already you said it. You said that that the funeral word. Nadia is not here with us today, so yeah. I don't want you to tell the whole story because I, want, I don't want people to go read it, but um, you lost Nadia. Mm-hmm. Completely unexpected. Yeah, definitely. Um, we got back to Russia, and we stayed in St. Petersburg for a little while after that, and then Nadia always, in St. Petersburg, basically from like November to March or April, it's like the clouds are always overhead, it's always, if it's not snowing, it's just cloudy and cold. Um, and Nadia, I told her, I think you have seasonal affective disorder. And so she actually was born in a place in South Russia called Krasnodar Krai, like Krasnodar State. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, she thought, well, why don't we go down there and teach English mm-hmm. <laughs> and where it's sunny and most of the time and, uh, I'm like, sure, why not? I came here to explore and learn new things. Why not? So we ended up going there, and we settled in a city called Krasnodar, which is officially has about 700,000 people, but unofficially probably more like a million with all the undocumented workers who were oh, there. Wow. Yeah. Because Russia gets a lot of people from like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, mm. other Stans, right. <laughs> in Central Asia, Armenia, Georgia, who come to Russia for, to find work. Right. Um, so anyway, when we, while we were there, um, she started having some problems, pains in her abdomen and everything, and she went to the doctor in Krasnodar, 
And they just gave her the number one advice all Russian doctors give is change your diet. Mm. And so I had no idea that has nothing to do with that. Right. But it got better for a while. But then that coming Christmas, we were back in St. Petersburg to spend time with her daughter. I call her my Russian daughter now, Rita. Right. And she got all in serious pain. Mm. And so I actually called the ambulance and took her to a hospital there in St. Petersburg. Their first question was, why didn't they remove the cysts? Mm. While we were there, and I said, well, that was my first question, too. Right. Um, so they gave her some medication. She was fine, but they said, eventually, you're going to have to have these cysts removed. And so we went back to Krasnodar, and everything was okay. Then we decided to move back to St. Petersburg because Rita had a son. And, of course, Nadia wanted to be close to her grandson. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's fine, too, because... It says in the, I won't get into that, it's in the book. Sure. But uh, anyway, it got the situation, the political and economic situation was getting worse. And Nadia wanted, finally got to the point where she wanted to move here as my wife. And so we started going through the process of getting her spouse visa. Mm-hmm. And most Americans have no idea about the process and the cost of doing things the legal way. Right. And so, but we got all the way through this and uh, her doctor in St. Petersburg says, you really need to have these cysts removed. And it was on her uterus. And so she had a hysterectomy. Well, they had said, this is just going to be routine surgery, easy, whatever. And so the day after the surgery, I went to her room and, and she was smiling, happy, everything was fine. She told me what to bring back from our apartment because the I go into Russian hospitals for the for the average person. If your name is Putin, it's totally different. But uh, I can for, imagine. The, for the rest of the people, it's it's for an American, it's incredible. Yeah. And so I left there right after lunchtime because I had classes to teach that evening. So I was going to go home and prepare for that. I was going to come the next day and drop off food and stuff for her. And so it was about one o'clock. So, and then I had to get up very early the next morning to teach classes at an oil company right outside St. Petersburg. Most of my students were adults who were learning English for their job or for travel or whatever. And so I got back home, got back home about 10.30 a.m. after that, and then there was a knock on the door, and it was Rita, Nadia's natural daughter, and her husband, and their little boy, William, and I thought they were just going to maybe spend, it was a Friday, so I thought maybe they were, they were just going to spend the weekend in that apartment, because it was their apartment we were living in, Right. and they, they stayed most of the time at her in-law's dacha country house, and, but... Uh, Rita said, Harold, sit. So we went to my room, and then she goes, Mama died. Mm. And we were on the fifth floor. It felt like my <laughs> I fell down to the first floor. Yeah, It just took the air out of my yeah. lungs, everything. But it turned, long story short, it turned out that she had had a blood clot. Mm. And the woman in the room with her said about 6 o'clock that evening, Nadia had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so she was going to get up and go to the bathroom and she said the woman said as soon as Nadia stood up to put on her slippers she got all the way up then she collapsed back on the bed and shook a few times and that was it Mm. and so 
Uh, we had the funeral, and that was very interesting. Right, <laughs> um, right. It was all a very, I was just, it's one of those things where I know where she was. <laughs> I know, but it was just. That doesn't help grief. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I think most people uh, don't understand the, the throwing around the theological reality of their location with Christ doesn't alleviate right. grief. It's still like, man, it's like. Yeah. They we, rip your arm yeah. out or something. Yeah, and, we uh, we know where they are. Yeah, and so and hurting that, but, is part of the. the yeah, yeah. yeah, reading the the account is de- definitely a different a process than you were used to. And definitely, and 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 I was just reading that. Um, it was felt uh, in my own soul having had to process grief. Uh, it's it's hard. It was difficult reading that because uh, it's not very private. You know, and some of those things, and you describe going in, and uh, this is a difficult process. And I know you've continued to grieve. You now, know, my uh, the publisher of my book, uh, Rachel, and with Lazarus Tribe Media, I had written right after the lockdown started. Well, to back up a little bit, even when I was still in Russia, I would share little observations or things that had happened to me on Facebook or whatever. And I had right. friends back here who said, you're going to write a book, aren't you? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. Right. I actually started writing when I was still in Russia, but at that time it was kind of boring. <laughs> actually, sure. I thought, so I, I actually tried to write a fictionalized account of it. And, but then I found that my plot was kind of covering over what the main points I wanted to make. Right. And so I just kind of whatever, and then I I decided well, I, when the lockdown happened, I thought I need to write this because I'm kind of strong enough now. So I did, and but I knew it really wasn't publishable. So I showed Rachel this, and she said, "You really need to focus on what you really want to say, and then kind of leave out mm. some of the other stuff." And so, yeah, it was. She said, "The more vulnerable you make, the more you're going to help somebody." Yeah. So yeah, it, that chapter. Oh man, that was a tough chapter to write because yeah. I was having to relive it, and right. there were certain things you suppress or you just kind of forget yeah. about until you actually put it on paper. Yeah, and so yeah, that was a very. I think it took me two days full to write that sure. chapter. Yeah, that's tough. If you could summarize, there are many points. Um, take take thirty seconds and one one of your main purposes for writing tell us tell us a main purpose for writing your story yeah one of the one of the first main purposes was to encourage people to get outside the comfort zone that may not mean going to another country but it could just mean you know talking to your neighbor next door or talking to the person in the next cubicle at the office the main thing is to go yeah to get moving yeah to live an outward life right yeah and the next the other main thing would be that you know when when tragedy happens, God's still there. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't go anywhere. Mm. Um, so those are probably two of the main. That's huge. Telling you that from this book. I love it. I love reading your book. Uh, those, those two points drive are driven home. And, and I think, uh, I think we talk about this frequently. Uh, and we have talked about it frequently that our faith is not lived out in the easy moments. It's lived out in the hard mm-hmm. as we live an outward life, as we seek to live outward mm-hmm. up in and out, we say, um, and go out from our walk with the Lord and our fellowship with each other, it's going to come with some smacks in the face, uh, metaphorically, and how we respond. Um, we're not always going to respond perfectly, but 
it's a reflection of what we believe. It's right. our theology played out in the dirt. Yeah. And uh, Harold, it's a fantastic story. I want to encourage people to go get the book. Tell us where they can get crazy people like us. Okay, you can get it on Amazon, either paperback or Kindle at Amazon.com. Just look up Crazy People Like Us by Harold Campbell. Take it right there. You can also get it on the publisher's website, Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S, just like Lazarus Tribe, like Indian Tribe Media, all one word, dot com. You can order it from there, too. Fantastic. I will put some links to that in the uh, in the blog post as we post this uh, podcast on the blog, theologyinthedirt.com. Uh, so folks can click that link and go check it out and buy it. I want to encourage you to do it. If you know Harold, uh, ask him about his book. Uh, if you guys uh, see him at church or see him around town, ask him about the book and and, uh, and and he can share some more information with you. Just encourage you to go get the book and read it as well. Uh, as we close out our time, uh, I want to ask you, because of our current situation, you mentioned Kiev, uh, Kiev and uh, Ukraine and having lived in Russia and, uh, and having experienced Russian culture, take a moment and talk about the worldview uh, possibly that a, a person like uh, President Putin uh, has that leads to, this is totally shifting gears, but you've lived there. and People may be curious. I might ask you the question like, geez, what is happening <laughs> sure. in this former Soviet territory? Um, there's all kinds of stuff in play. That could be a whole podcast by itself. But what might the worldview of a Vladimir Putin be uh, to justify some of what is happening in the current uh, Ukraine. Okay. Um, just real close. I've, I've had enough here. <laughs> My notes written for <laughs> two podcasts, but right. uh, to go way back, um, there was this place called Kievan Rus that was back from like the 900s to the 1200s. And it was a territory basically from the White Sea, which is right next to the uh, Arctic Ocean in the northern end of the very western part of Russia, Eastern Europe, all the way down to the Black Sea that now covers parts of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Mm. All three countries claim that as their beginnings, so there's disputes there. We Americans don't realize that a lot of these countries have disputes that go back centuries, centuries, centuries. You know, here in the South, we think about the Civil War and the Lost Cause and all that. Right. That's like yesterday to those people. Right. Um, so Ukrainians say, yeah, the, the culture starts in U Ukraine came first. Right. Russians say, no, well, the first capital was, we had capital in Russia, Nizhny Novgorod. Mm. It goes back to that thing. Uh, later, um, Ukraine becomes part of the Russian Empire under the czars. Then right after World War One, there was a brief period of time around the Russian Revolution that Ukraine was actually kind of an independent kind of country called the mm. Ukrainian People's Republic or something like that. Right. But then like in 1922, it became an official, one of the first original members, states in the Union of Socialists, Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR, Soviet right. Union. It became the most industrial, one of the most industrialized and populous parts of, uh, and most Americans don't realize that Ukraine is like the second most, second largest country in Europe mm, right. behind Russia. Mm. Uh, it became very important, manufacturing, industrial. A lot of the uh, nuclear weapons 
in the Soviet Union were made in Ukraine. Chernobyl is in Ukraine. And Chernobyl was in Ukraine. All right. that. Um, that was still in the news last week or the week before. Right. So um, a Russian Russians look at Ukraine as like their brothers, mm. that we are all Slavic brothers to skip a whole lot. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a, in Russian eyes, NATO has encroached to their western border. Right. Uh, according to Russians, there were some agreements made with Gorbachev and some of the others at that time when the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain collapsed, the Soviet Union collapsed, where supposedly NATO leaders said, yeah, we're not going to move any farther east. Well, there's some disagreements as to what, you know, what, what was the extent of that. Right. Uh, Ukraine was looking. Ukraine was looking to become more closer to the west, closer to the west. Right. Russia didn't like that. Right. And there's a peninsula called Crimea, which is like the southern part mm-hmm. of Ukraine that sticks in the Black Sea. That had traditionally been part of Russia, the Russian Empire. Russia had naval bases there right. uh, from way back, and Khrushchev had given that to Ukraine when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Russians say, well, he didn't have the right to do that. So they wanted their land back. That's how they would look at it. And so in 2014, we were living in Krasnodar, which was like 200 miles north of Sochi. You might remember the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Right, yeah. We were, uh, the Olympic torch went right through Krasnodar on the way. Right. Uh, during the Winter Olympics, Russia started doing some stuff uh, in Crimea and right. eastern part of Ukraine where a lot of Russian speakers, Russian natives or descendants live and under the guise of protecting our people. Yeah. And I remember that happening in the 2014 Olympics. Yeah. yeah. I remember a skier or something from Ukraine – who was skiing right when her city was getting bombed or something right. and just seeing the tears on her, in yeah. her eyes and everything. But, uh, yeah. so that's how that started. Uh, yeah. the, they would look at it as we want to protect the Russian speaking population who live in different parts of the world. They call it Ruski Mir, which means Russian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are, and other other countries started getting nervous too. Because there are a lot of former Russian Russian descendants and Russian speaking people who live in the Baltic countries, Estonia, right. Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, some of the other countries. They thought, well, what's going to happen to us? And they're starting to wonder, right? And yeah. if yeah. you see any parallels between that and a certain world leader right before World War II with the Sudetenland and other Austria and other places. Purely yeah. coincidence. Purely coincidence, <laughs> so, right? Purely coincidence. There's a lot there to unpack. Uh, it, we might we might have to actually have you back to just do that, which would sure. be absolutely fascinating. Sure. Because we as Christians have to think through mm-hmm. how we engage hard things, and not yeah. just in our own lives, but in the world. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, the, the reality is, we are we are one mm-hmm. with our brothers and sisters who live around the world, and their suffering is our suffering. Mm-hmm. Particularly if we are out focused and. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we to think and feel about situations that is that are that are currently going on that we watch on the news? What is our response supposed to be? And 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 it's good to unpack that with people who are thinking uh, biblically 
as opposed to through the lens of whatever news source they choose as their predominant vehicle of information. Yeah. And, uh, and, and unless that's varied, we can get in a, a spiral of bad information. Sure. And so it's good to unpack that. So, uh, Harold, thank you for spending time with us this morning. Well, it's thank a pleasure. you for having me. Yeah, it's a joy. So you guys go to amazon.com, look for crazy people like us and Lazarus tribe media.com. Right. And you can look, uh, you can get Harold's book. there, crazy people like us. Again, we'll put it in the blog post. You can click on it, go and buy it, read it, talk to Harold about it. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so very much. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to uh, bring these subjects in front of you and talk about them. If you'd like for us to talk about uh, a subject you want to hear us unpack, you can email that to us at theologyinthedirt at gmail.com, and we're absolutely glad to uh, unpack it. So lots of stuff coming up. And uh, more on the way as you wrestle through things and maybe want some help doing it or just want to hear our thoughts on it. Again, email it to theologyandthedirt at gmail.com. We appreciate you guys. Have a great rest of your day. See you next time. Out.